BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Episode 74 of The Bowery Boys. Ziegfeld presents... Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And welcome to another episode. Welcome. Happy New Year, Tom. Welcome 2009. And we're going to kick it off with the show. We're talking about Ziegfeld, the Ziegfeld Follies, and the Ziegfeld Theater. And, of course, Ziegfeld the Man, Florence Ziegfeld. Everything you wanted to know about Ziegfeld but didn't realize you wanted to ask. So come on in. We've got your ticket to the history of Ziegfeld. All right, Greg. Well, before we kick it off here, why don't we situate the listener? Oh, before, but wait, before we get into that, I have uh, we do have a special announcement for 2009. We have had to change the frequency of our episodes. We had to go. We've had to go down to every other week, at least right. here for a while. Um, you know, until everything blows over. But but this is a happy thing because it means that the episodes will even be better. Because right? well, they're going to be more. I think they are going to be, but they're going to be more epic. So hopefully that doesn't rattle you. Pour yourself a drink if you're a little rattled. <laughs> um, well, I hope you have one anyway, because we're going to be talking about a very uh, glamorous subject here. So by way of situation, then, I would just like to say that it is a little complicated, because unlike, say, Rockefeller Center, which has a precise place, we're talking about a man named Florence Ziegfeld. Now, now there is a Ziegfeld Theater. There and- is there is one today. And it's on 54th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. But that wasn't the original Ziegfeld Theater. The, the original was on part of that lot, but it was bigger, and it was over on 6th Avenue at 54th Street between 54th and 55th. And we'll explain, we'll explain that a little bit more deeply. This theatrically themed podcast is actually <laughs> going to be taking place over three or four different theaters. And so we'll discuss right. those as we go along. This show's on the road. So then you wouldn't mind then, Tom... If I go back to the late 18th, I don't know if he enjoyed the theater. 
Um, but I am going to go back to the late 18th century. To give us a little background on theater in New York? I'm setting the stage so please, that please. Ziegfeld can mount it for us later. There's always been theaters in New York, at least since 1750, though people often trace the birth of New York theater to the Park Theater, mm-hmm. which was built in 1798 on Park Row. And because what made this significant is all these other theaters before then were like 200 people, 300 people. This had 2,000 seats oh, wow. all the way back there in 1798. And this would have been facing City Hall. Facing City, yes, correct. Now, like everything, the journey of the theater in New York City is going to basically follow the general course of the population, namely, everything here is moving north. Now, in the 19th century, one of your earliest concentrations of theater were actually on the Bowery. And a lot of these theaters and the shows that went on there were associated with the working class, and they would have ethnic class flavors to the shows. The first real theater district in New York began in the 1850s and 1860s, and that was around Union Square. And a little bit later after that, it even moved up a little bit further, up around Madison Square. So now we're talking that area of Broadway between... 14th Street and 23rd Street. The kind of shows that would go on at this time would be like operettas. There's two other forms of, of theater that are being developed. There's the vaudeville, which is like a, a smorgasbord of just different performers. You pay your money, you go in, and you'd see a dancer, a singer. You might see a small little play. You might see right. jugglers. You may see an animal act. Then, of course, you also had burlesque shows at this time. These were a little darker, a little bawdier. Mm-hmm. Um, something with a kick, you know, but not quite strip tease. I, mean, I think burlesque, and I think Gypsy Rose Lee, right, and exactly. pulling off stockings, not wearing much. It would evolve there in the 20th century, okay. but not quite there yet. So as I've said, theater's climbing up Broadway, but not even just theater, but even higher cultural endeavors, like of course the Metropolitan Opera House, which would land on West 39th and Broadway. But that's you know that's fairly northern. Three very significant things happen in the creation of our own modern theater district. The one that we know and love today. Three things. Are these your three things? Or are these I think, generally accepted? As- I think these are generally accepted. One of them is theater-related. The other two are, are not. But they define our theater district today. Okay. The first one being a theater that was built up there by a man named Oscar Hammerstein. Uh-huh. Now, he sounds familiar, familiar but it's not the one you know. It's his father. Okay. It's his dad. His father was a theater owner. He owned several theaters throughout town, downtown and, and Harlem as well. In 1895, he decided that he's going to build a theater where no one else has one. It was the first really massive theater to be built in what we consider the theater district. It's at 45th Street and like the Broadway 7th Avenue that uh, right. Long, cluster. Long Acre Square is what they called it back then. The Long Acre neighborhood is still kind of horse and carriage industries. There's, I mean, that's what you're saying mostly. You're not seeing theaters up there. The second thing that happened, 1904, the subway opened. Grand, you know, Grand Central is just, of course, down the street on 42nd Street. But one major subway stop was here at Broadway and 42nd Street. It kind of worked as a magnet to pull all those sort of crowd drawing activities up Broadway gathering cluster around 42nd Street. And of course, finally, I think you can probably guess this, the third biggest thing to happen to this neighborhood is the New York Times moving into the neighborhood, building one Times Square, and finally Long Acre Square being renamed Times Square in the same year that the subway was opened in 1904. By 1910, the industry 
the already a burgeoning industry, but dozens of stages all through New York are controlled by two groups of people. You have the most powerful group of theater managers that have bonded together. We call them the syndicate, though more officially you might want to call them Claw and Erlinger. So it was a man named Marcus Claw. Mm-hmm. And with a K. With a K. And A.L. Erlinger. They, what they did is they owned theaters. They controlled the leases. They controlled performers. They owned a nationwide network. And they basically, it was a trust. It was like a monopoly almost. From the late 1890s to the 1910, it was virtually impossible to get something staged without their help. They probably also controlled ticket prices. They, uh, they, they controlled the industry, every element of it. You know, in addition to owning, owning dozens of theaters, they, their jewel was here on 42nd Street, and it was called the New Amsterdam Theater, built in 1903. It was the largest theater in Manhattan, and we still have it. Like, it's still right. there, and the Lion King is still there, right? It's been, it was completely renovated by, by Disney, but uh, yeah, it's still right there. Around 1910, however, there was another group that was laying claim to some of these theaters and was beginning to threaten the syndicate's power hold over the theater industry. These were the Schubert's. They were three brothers, Sam, Lee, and Jacob Schubert. Unfortunately, Sam died in a railroad accident very, very early on, but the other two brothers took on the mantle and became equally as powerful as the syndicate. Theater stars had really revolted against the syndicate because they weren't very easy to work with, so when the Schuberts came along, many of them would sort of jump ship, and so you literally had a sort of a Hatfield versus McCoy kind of situation. Eventually, they did sort of all like bury the hatchet, because it was really kind of, it was a war, a drama war. Wow. I mean, we all love those. Indeed, especially when they drive down the ticket price. If you are a New York theater lover in the 1910s, right. you are basically the winner of this conflict because they opened dozens of new stages, they commissioned dozens of new productions, and it was a huge time for creativity because also at the same time, you had Tin Pan Alley. Right. Was, there were dozens of songwriters there churning out music, so this was, it was was a golden age, and it was beginning right here around the time that a certain Flo Ziegfeld enters the picture. Well, Flo Ziegfeld had actually entered his picture a little bit earlier. He was born in 1867 in Chicago, and his family were German immigrants, and his father ran the local College of Music. And this was classical music, right? Right. He was a very cultured man, and they they had a relatively strict household. Flo always had a kind of zest and imagination for theatrics and also for salesmanship. Early on, tried to sell his friends tickets to come see an invisible fish. Very enterprising of him. Enterprising, and it's an easy way to make money off of a bowl of water. You don't have to feed it. No. When he was 26 or so, about 1893, was the time of the world's exposition, the World's Fair in Chicago. Right. And his father decided to capitalize off of that. And so he opened a nightclub or a performance space called the Trocadero. Now, the Trocadero, according to his father, would be a place for finer performing arts, you know. I was going to say, when you say nightclub and Trocadero, it sounds very uh, glitzy, but well, in fact, it's I think it was a... an evening's entertainment. You could gotcha. go off and you could hear some refined classical music. The tourists weren't really that interested, I think. There were other things that were <laughs> seducing them away during the World's Fair. Uh-huh. Florence, however, he asked his father if he could take over 
publicity and booking shows. And so he booked a strong man named Eugene Sandow. A, like a strong man, like a, like a muscle man. A Arnold big, Schwarzenegger exactly. kind of... Uh, a man who would stand up on stage, flex his giant biceps and his pecs, and woo the crowd. Now, and people would pay for this especially after they saw him once he managed to get some society dames into the house one night and he let them backstage and he had arranged it with the press to come back and snap photos of these first ladies of Chicago society getting all red face and blushing and touching the biceps of this man. Well, sounds kind of risque. Well, yeah. They ran the photos and he filled the house. So he learned something early on at 26. Then he took Sandow on the road, flaunting the success that he had had in Chicago. Chicago. Now, after two years of going around with a strong man, Flo where, do, where do you go from there? Flo decided he was ready. How much more could he lift? <laughs> for Broadway. So he gets to New York in 1895, and he finds a vehicle, a show to put on, called a parlor match. A parlor match. But he needs, you know, like a match that you would have in the parlor. <laughs> in no my, strikes in, involved. In, in my parlor, sure. But he needed a leading lady. And for that, he headed off to England, where he was wooed in a London music hall by the fabulous Anna Held. Now, Anna had this sort of continental way about her. She had an accent, a French accent. She had an hourglass shape. She had a beautiful face. and she had woman. And somehow aristocratic. A splendid creature. She was also signed to the Folie Bergère, the, the French follies that performed in Paris. She couldn't just, like, leave all of that and come to New York with this Ziegfeld, but he tried to, you know, seduce her. He tried all these things. He wined and dined her, and he blew through a tremendous amount of money just trying to woo her over. Not just professionally, either, right? This is a romantic situation. Well, this turned into a romantic situation, yeah, after, a, you know, how many dinners and bottles of wine anything turns into a romantic situation <laughs> so he blew through his money now do you remember diamond jim brady who had oh, the yes. champagne uh, porch uh, at the uh, plaza well, lily and russell i mean they, they were the two most seen and most talked about couples at the turn of the century well diamond jim who was willing to you know invest in all kinds of crazy things he was a friend of course of florence and had to wire fifteen hundred dollars over to him in london to buy Anna out of her contract. This is a little pattern of, Z of Ziggy and his finance problems. He spends a lot of money, and then he always owes a lot of money. And he's a gambler. He was willing to just, like, throw all this money at Anna. At the end of the day, she didn't have to go with him. You know, she could have stayed there. And once they got back to New York, I mean, he just went into overdrive trying to invent scenarios that would give her more publicity. He invented this rumor that she took baths and milk. That was at least a rumor. It turned out it wasn't true, but it, it did generate enough press. And when the, the story started dying down, Florence just invented the story that actually the latest shipment, the latest vat of milk that she got from a well-known milk producer was spoiled upon delivery. <laughs> and here poor Anna had taken a milk bath and spoiled milk. So she was in a parlor match, I'm assuming, at so some point. Oh, right, the show. The, the parlor match. Parlor but then match, also yeah. she was went on to do a few shows with him. She filled the houses and he took it, her on a national tour because by this point she had 
even garnered uh, national publicity. So over the next 12 years, actually, Ziegfeld would continue to produce shows for Anna. And this was before the famous Ziegfeld Follies. These were shows. They had stories, uh, I mean, loose Loose, stories. yeah, a loose collection of songs together with a cheesy right. story. And he was understanding that she had, you know, she had a nice figure. He was kind of selling her and selling this femininity on stage. And so he even took that to the next level and put a whole line of girls behind her. I forgot to mention that Anna was married. That would cause some difficulty in our today's culture. I'm assuming it did in 1896 as well. In so much as he was having a public romance with her. The next year, she ended up divorcing her husband because he, too, was a gambler. She knew how to pick him. (laughs) She and Ziegfeld didn't exactly get married, legally married. They declared themselves married, and they cohabitated together. Common law, right? Common law. And in New York, that was good enough. Their relationship over the next decade would be bumpy. I mean, he sold off jewelry at one point and then pretended it was stolen to get some publicity. You know, it was hard to be married to Florence Ziegfeld. Because <laughs> there was always a scheme, always a shenanigan. <laughs> always a way to get some press. In 1912, Held finally divorced Ziegfeld. But she left Ziegfeld with probably the most important gift that two people could share. A it- big bathtub full of <laughs> soiled milk. <laughs> Um, I was going to say inspiration, actually, Uh. because it was Anna who gave Flo the inspiration for his Ziegfeld Follies. She'd been performing at this music hall called the Folie Berger. Mm -hmm. Folie means like foliage. Berger was the name of the street it was on. But if you can think of a foley, like a, a, a various different kinds of leaves on a tree, different styles, different colors, this became the type of show that he wanted to start putting on because it, he thought it would be very profitable. It's very different um, in the United States. He even started to use the word review in the French form. R-E-V-U-E. He actually popularized that over in the United States to describe these types of shows that were like variety programs with singing and dancing and beautiful people. Wow, I didn't realize that he brought that word over. I he mean, imported that well, word. Well, he didn't you know, create the word, but he popularized it in terms of this t- as a type of show. So the very first Follies that he threw was in 1907. He originally perceived this as like something that would draw in like the upper class, the tuxedo crowd. But then... As the years went on and as his flamboyance and his extravagance started to fill all these shows, attracted the mainstream audiences because they were just spectacles. They were just absolutely overfilled with glamour. Such as singing and dancing chorus lines. Well, I'll tell you what you would have seen. Well, the first, so the very first Follies took place at the New York Theater, which is, of course, no longer there, and a rooftop garden. Now, a lot of these theaters actually had rooftops uh, where they had summertime shows. Um, even Which is such a great concept. You well, know? but even back in the days of P.T. Barnum and American Museum, he had, you know, a little rooftop garden when he well, had because shows. because it was cooler, too. So uh, the, the garden up there was called the Jardin de Paris. Mm-hmm. And with each year, of course, this the shows would get progressively more popular. Eventually, they would move to the New Amsterdam Theater in 1913, which we just previously mentioned. Now, let me what, – this is what, a, what it would be in a Follies, Tom. Like if you were just – the types of things you would see in a Follies, um, you know, it, it would mostly be a musical variety show. It would run well past three hours with a very – Three hours? 
three, sometimes more than three hours. Could you? Were people getting up and walking around? Were they taking well, they had, drinks? They had intermissions and and then things. But I mean, it's this whatever. It's the summertime. Sure, it's yeah, great, yeah. you know. You'd have these tent pole performances by main stars, by the big stars, which we'll list some of those in a second. And by that, you mean that these were the big acts, and everything else was just kind of they were holding up the whole show. The, the names, though, though actually they, he didn't put the names of them on the poster, but they're just like the big names that people knew, the Broadway stars. Um, you would have these lavish sets. And dance numbers, but dozens and dozens of women, sometimes almost as many as 120 women on stage at once. Wow. I mean, that is a lot of lady. It's a lot of leg. You'd have these smaller comic dance routines, which would incorporate whatever the song of the day was, if there was a popular song or just like something he wanted to try out. You Then you would have these, I think this is the most fascinating, the tableau vivant, which would be just, the, the curtains would open and it would be women in absolutely outrageous outfits and sets. And oftentimes, and this is incredible, a lot of the times the women would be completely naked. But they, they had this very archaic law that it's long, so long as the women didn't actually move that it was okay for them to be naked because it was an artistic endeavor additionally you also had parodies of celebrities and of popular shows almost something that like saturday night live would do but just those kinds of little skits in, be- in between okay and maybe not something that we would find exciting to watch today they would also be minstrel numbers uh, blackface numbers where many, even of some of these big stars would do a blackface song. Even though, even by the 1920s, though, it, this was dying out, but it was still inhabiting people. And some of the biggest perform, the biggest names for Ziegfeld were white performers putting on black makeup and singing. And yeah, I mean, but keep, let's keep in mind that this is happening. This isn't just a Follies phenomenon. This is what they went to right. the theater for, and it's a, it's a little weird for us today. And they would even perform a lot of these songs in sort of stereotypical black dialects. Un- maybe unpleasant to us today, but you just have to think about the context of these things. And it wasn't like acceptable then, but that was just the way it is. Now, I'm throwing out some examples of some... I'll throw out a year and just the types of things you would have oh, seen good, in that year. Good. So... In 1909, for instance, many of the you had Ziegfeld chorus girls flying over heads of the audience in a newfangled replica of a Wright Brother airplane. Um, in 1910, they had a swimming pool on stage for a live number. In 1911 was the debut of the Dolly Sisters. He always had sister acts in his shows from the beginning to the end. He always had a sister act. The Dollies were the fame were very were very very popular, and they performed on stage as Siamese twins. Oh. Uh, in 19... They were... I'm sorry, they were real Siamese twins? No, they were performing as Siamese twins. Oh. It was a... It was spectacle, Tom. Spectacle. Right. Illusion. Yeah, you um, wouldn't really do that today either. Probably. In 1912, they, tr- they tried this really inventive thing. Of, they would have various stars of, of the Follies in the audience that would jump up and would start arguing with how the show needed to proceed to the next oh. level. And it really Clever. confused. It was very breaking the fourth wall. In 1913, you would have a row of dancers that were poking fun at women's right to vote. And so the, it was the, the suffrage movement. There was a big dance number called the Ragtime Suffragette. In 1915, a big addition to the show would be Joseph Urban would come in. And he was an architect, but he was he designed the sets. So the, the quality of the sets really improved. 
starting in 1915. And we've come into contact with Joseph Urban a number of times now because he also did the Persian Room at the Plaza Hotel. He was the go-to guy for these, if you just wanted, these lush sophistication. Like his sets would have these stairways that would literally stretch up into infinity. I can imagine these, you know, having seen some of the films, that aesthetic is very pleasing. The Follies are so successful. They're hugely successful year after year that everyone starts, of course, ripping them off. And so you have other people doing things like the scandals and the vanities. And eventually, Ziegfeld even rips himself off by having another set of these variety shows called the Midnight Frolics. Um, The Frolics? The Frolics, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The Frolics, though, would be a little bit more like tawdry, a little bit more like a little more sizzle, maybe. In particular, they had a glass runway that was above the audience's head, and some of the dancers would come up and down that runway. And I mean, like, you see a bunch of leggy ladies right above you, and, and this is like the 1920s. People didn't know what to do with themselves. And I have a little question here. When you're talking about all of the different acts that went into a Follies, it also sounds kind of like vaudeville. So what made a folly a folly? Money. Oh, just the production well, quality? Well, I mean, the, pr- the production quality. I mean, many of these major stars are were straight from the vaudeville circuit. I mean, for instance, Fanny Bryce. Right. Fanny Bryce, who was... I mean, she was a comedian. She was also a singer. She was in many of the Follies, I think, more than any other performer. And, of course, Ziegfeld claimed that he discovered her selling newspapers under the Brooklyn Bridge. Which I don't think, I don't believe was true. No, because she had already been, where she'd worked her way up in the burlesque circles and was already an established performer. And actually, do we have time for a funny little anecdote about Fanny Bryce? I mean, in 1911, you, there was another woman, Lillian Lorraine, who was a temperamental actress, performer. And a lover of Ziegfeld. And, an, and another lover. And Lillian didn't get along with Fanny Bryce, called her a name backstage during a Follies, they got into a fight that was so loud that it interrupted the show, and then Fanny Bryce dragged Lillian across the stage by her (laughs) hair as the audience cheered. That's theater. That's the old Broadway I used to love. Um, One of the most interesting stars of, of the Ziegfeld shows was a man named Burt Williams. Now, he did blackface, but he happened to also be a black man who was doing blackface. Wait, Um, so he did put black makeup on? Yes, to exaggerate. Just it looks ridiculous. But he was able to have an extremely successful career on the stage. As a matter of fact, he became the highest paid star of the Follies. This is obviously very controversial at this particular time to have a a black man on stage performing with white performers. Right, and and the first year he wasn't allowed to do it. He had to perform on stage by himself. But then one day he popped up in a musical number and people were fine with it after a while. Uh, Other notable stars include W.C. Fields, uh, who didn't really like Ziegfeld personally, but he had great success on Ziegfeld's stage in The Follies. He joined The Follies in 1918. Ed Wynn, the actor, uh, Will Rogers... You know, expanded his cowboy shtick. Two of the chorus girls, two of the Ziegfeld Follies girls, broke out a little bit. One of them was Marilyn Miller, probably the most successful Ziegfeld girl. She was a force of personality. She actually, people say that she didn't have a great singing voice and she couldn't really act very well. But she really embodied this free spirit jazz age star. She was very popular. There was also a woman named Billy Burke who was already a star in her own right, but she was in The Follies a few times, and then became... Mrs. Florence Ziegfeld. Now, they met 
at a New Year's ball in 1913 at the Astor Hotel. Long story, let's just say that Anna held and Lillian Lorraine were also there. It was a big drama, big spectacle. Uh, but Billy Burke ended up falling in love with the showman, and they would be married until the end of his life. Now, these two aren't, weren't the only famous uh, Ziegfeld girls. You had other women who were Ziegfeld girls and went on to more famous things. was Barbara Stanwyck, Louise Brooks, Marion Davies. I'm going to give you one more name, Tom. Doris Eaton Travis. Doesn't sound familiar, does it? No, it doesn't. She was Did born she... in 1904. The reason I'm telling you her name is she is the only remaining living Ziegfeld girl. She still is, she's still with us. In the 90s, she actually went back to the New Amsterdam stage and was part of a number, which I'm sure just brought the house down. Wow, fantastic. So as the Follies were going on, he, he then moved into other shows in the 1920s that were more book musicals. For instance, Sally, a 1920 musical, a sort of star vehicle for Marilyn Miller, right, who Ma- you just mm-hmm. mentioned. The story was about a dishwasher who's dancing abilities take her to stardom in the Ziegfeld Follies. And and there were a lot of shows at this time that were these one, like these women's names, like Sally. Right. Rosalie. Rosalie, yes. Yeah, eight so years later. One. But Sally would have music by Jerome Kern, oh. who, of course, we, you know, we, we didn't even mention the fact that these big composers were also involved in this. Well, yeah, you had... Um, Irving Berlin had worked with him, uh, Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein II, The Sun. Right. Um, Gershwin? Gershwin maybe? was even on audition, the audition pianist for The, for uh, the Follies. Can you imagine having George Gershwin as your audition pianist? Uh, it wasn't nice to be them, though, I have to say, because Ziegfeld paid his stars handsomely, but he paid his songwriters nothing and then rarely paid them at all, if anything. As a matter of fact, one of his most prolific songwriters, Victor Herbert, actually had a heart attack and died, allegedly because of arguing with Flo about money, about royalties. He wouldn't pay them? What? Was he thinking that they'd end up selling a lot of sheet music because of his shows? It just kind of goes to show you what he, where his priorities were. 1928, same year as Rosalie, was Whoopi. Eddie Cantor was in that and sang the song, Making oh, Whoopi. Okay, the classic. And Ruth Edding sang the song Love Me or Leave Me. I mean, these are songs that are still with us today. In the song stack. But in 1927, I think Ziegfeld really hit it big and in an unusual way for somebody who had spent so long putting on shows that were aesthetically very pleasing, perhaps a bit frivolous, when he produced Showboat which goes down as one of the first musicals to tell a serious story where the songs advance the storyline. Mm-hmm. I think we could even say the first. It's sort of the first it is great pretty much musical. The, it's, a, it's considered, it's a, it's a milestone. And this featured, of course, songs by Jerome Kern, the libretto by Oscar Hammerstein. Classic songs come from this show, of course, Old Man River, Bill, Make Believe, and my favorite, Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine. These are all, those are all great classics. I forgot to even mention, by the way, that it debuts at the new Ziegfeld Theater. It's the second show to actually play there. Ziegfeld had finally kind of had it with dealing with Erlinger. And so, what do you know? William Randolph Hearst just happens to own some land, and he thinks that he wants to build a theater because it'll draw uh, people up to some of the other things that he's building there. So he builds a theater in 1927. It's 1,600 seats. So he finally had his own theater, and yes, I mean, so Showboat played there forever and then was later revived. It would be revived in 1932. Why so soon afterwards? I mean, what happened between 1920 
1927 and 1932. Well, that's the big problem. This is the downfall of Ziegfeld, but also just of a lot a lot of these powerful man- managers, Broadway producers, because the, the stock market crash came in 1929. Many of the great stages that all these dozens of theaters, and many of them had to be demolished. They were closed and shut down. People just didn't have the money to buy tickets. You know, the, the clientele simply wasn't there. They were hanging out in bread lines. They weren't sitting in theaters. And you couldn't be like you couldn't be Ziegfeld and throw like you know hundreds of thousands of dollars into these shows anymore. In fact, he lost much of his own personal fortune in the stock market. He tried so many things to try to like make some money. He he tried crossing over into Hollywood. A lot of these things like Sally and Whoopi were all made into movies and Showboat. Mm. Um, he tried doing radio versions of the of the Ziegfeld Follies, which to me doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> he tried reviving Showboat again. Um, he even tried to bring back the Follies for one last time in 1931, but unfortunately the next year, 1932, he does die. But not before actually his wife had gotten into the game and had even moved out west. Billy Burke moved to California to try to settle some of these debts and work in film where there were still some jobs happening. And, you know, just a few years later, you know, to pay back some of these debts that that Ziegfeld had made, she had to make this little film in 1939 called... The Wizard of Oz, where if you hadn't guessed it yet, Billy Burke played Glinda the Good Witch. Now, three years earlier, which is pretty incredible, in 1936, a a film on his life, The Great Ziegfeld, won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Did you know that? But let me tell you briefly what happened to his theater. A year after his death, it was purchased by the Lowe's movie chain and so became a movie house for a very short time. Now, this is the old one, not the new one. Don't confuse it yet. In 1944, it fell under the control of Billy Rose. You you might remember his name because he also owned the theater that became Studio 54. He was sort of a mid-century version of Ziegfeld. In fact, he was actually at one time married to Fanny Bryce. Uh, It's like there are only 50 people in this (laughs) whole city, you know? They all just keep knowing each other and sleeping with each other. Um, He put on a few great shows there as a a back as a theatrical stage. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Kismet were two shows. But in 1955, then he sells it and NBC buys it uh-huh. and they turn it into like so many stages so how many t- this is like how many times we tell the story it turns it into a television studio and the Perry Como show was filmed there two Emmy Awards were, were filmed there a few years later and 63 it was briefly turned back into a theatrical stage until it was entirely torn down in 1965. Now, the new Ziegfeld Theater that's there today, it's in 1969 is when it was built. It has always shown films. And it's actually on the same property, right, as the original, just on part of the property. A few hundred feet from where the building, where the original Ziegfeld Theater might have been. The exterior kind of looks like a brown shoebox. Not surprisingly, Tom, it was designed by Emery Roth and Son. Oh, right, our friends. Uh, for who designed all the utilitarian, brutalist buildings in New York City, essentially. as 1,131 seats, and it frequently has revivals in 70 millimeters. It's, the website Cinema Treasures actually called this the last movie palace in Manhattan. I can agree with that. I mean, this is where you go when you want to see, say... Dream Girls on opening nights. Yeah, there, well, there's so many movie premieres. I mean, this is right. where, where mo- most movie premieres happen in New York is at the Ziegfeld Theater. By the way, trivia question. The movie that has played the longest at the Ziegfeld Theater for 31 weeks, Gandhi, um, number two for a total of 27 weeks was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh. And then third place was the original run of Cabaret. 
Ah, fantastic. And then just if you – I recommend everyone just to go see a movie there just because it really is a very comfortable theater. But the lobby of the theater has all these old photos of the original Ziegfeld Theater. So that's you know the closest you're really going to get to getting a taste of it. Ziegfeld's legacy certainly lives on in New York in theater lore, but also just in, I guess, a certain type of showmanship that still exists. And I didn't – I know you couldn't hear it. I What I forgot – to mention is while we were doing this podcast, we actually had 120 women standing behind <laughs> us uh, in elaborate costumes that I they, they were actually doing a tableau vivant. <laughs> we, we made sure that they didn't move. <laughs> <laughs> because it would be illegal. Right. Um, so anyway, thank you for joining us for this podcast. I just wanted to mention really quickly that t- Tom's going on a very long trip, but not not too long. You'll be back in, yes. uh, you'll be back in a month I'm or so. I'm going off to London to find me and Anna Held. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm leaving in two days, right? Going to Paris uh, to check out hotels for Euro Cheapo. If maybe you didn't know this, because um, I think we've only mentioned it in one or two podcasts, but I'm actually the editor of Euro Cheapo. So I have to go off and hunt down hotels and visit them. So, But you'll be I'll, seeing the results of your journeys then, I guess, when you get back and all yeah, that information will I'm be up there. Yeah, when writing all those reviews. Uh, then off to St. Petersburg, Russia for a week and then to Riga, Latvia to make a new little guide for the website. So that'll be quite a trip. Well, I'm just going to stay and, here in New York City and update our blog, Bowery well, Boys Podcast. <laughs> I would actually also like to add that we should all wish Greg a very happy belated birthday. Yesterday was Greg's birthday, and uh, he's looking fabulous. Thank you for 104 years old. We will have an episode in, or I will have an episode in two weeks. So, Tom, have a safe trip. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.